Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to another episode of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. And once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with it, but had their life changed by it in a major way. And today on the show, a future Hall of Famer. And if she doesn't get in this Hall of Fame, we got to just tear this thing down and start all over again, because if, if this band's not in it, I don't I don't think this thing should be there. From the Go-Go's, from the Textones, and from Austin's very first punk band, The Violators, Kathy Valentine. That's right. She has a brand new book called All I Ever Wanted that is fantastic. And uh, oh my gosh, this is a really great conversation. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me and we can communicate that way. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling your friends about it, letting everyone know that you listen to this thing. You can also subscribe to it and rate it on the platform you're listening to it on. And you can, uh, um, uh, head over to patreon.com slash turn out a punk. And we put up footnotes and have some other fun stuff going on over there. Uh, hidden episodes and video content, all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, thank you to everyone that does do that, by the way, very, very much. Speaking of thanks, a massive thanks to the fine folks at Vans who came aboard this podcast a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just don't do it out of your own pocket and have helped me cover the cost of doing this thing. And, uh, I can't thank them enough for that really means a lot. And one day when house of Vans returns, I long to be in front of uh, audiences there doing live turn out of punks again and things like that. Uh, also check out the uh, brand new uh, channel 66 that Vans has a lot of former guests from the show are doing stuff on there and a lot of cool, um, a lot of cool shows, a lot of cool stuff happened over there. All right. On, Oh no, one more thing. Uh, go over to floodmagazine.com and check out Punk as Fuck, Punk AF. It's a thing I did a couple years ago where I went around to L.A. And, and saw a lot of cool people and talked to a lot of cool people and just, just basically, you know, had a punk vacation in the city of Los Angeles. Uh, there's episodes with Don Bowles and, and Steve Albini at Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles. There's episodes with Brian Ray Turcott. There's episodes with Jonah Ray. It's, it's, it's worth checking out. If you like this show, I think you'd dig that too. All right, on to today's show. Today on the show, a bona fide legend and a rock and roll hall of famer, if there's any justice in the world. Kathy Valentine is on the show. She is best known, of course, as a member of the Go-Go's, but also played in the um, incredible Techstones, who had a record on Chiswick. How sick is that? And before that, played in Austin's first punk band, The Violators. She has a brand new book called All I Ever Wanted, 
And she has also released like a soundtrack record uh, for it as well. And it's incredible. Like the songs on her are amazing. She's an unbelievable songwriter as illustrated by the songs she's written over the years in all these different bands. But it's a really cool companion to have for this book. And I cannot recommend this book enough. It is uh, you know, a very compelling story at times, like a, a very heart wrenching story, but also just for us music nerds out there, this thing puts a lot of pieces together. You know, I reading this thing, I, uh, I have a new understanding, I think of how punk took root in Austin and, and stuff in Los Angeles. Anyway, phenomenal book. This conversation is unfortunately a little shorter than I think we both would have liked because she had to run off to a band meeting, but you know, who am I to stop the Go-Go's from doing business? You know, I'm not going to stand in the way of that, but she'll be back for a part two. Spoiler on that one. Uh, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the legend, Kathy Valentine on Turned Out Up Punk. Kathy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm I'm uh, I'm always happy to... to talk to somebody that has like kind of a, a theme and a direction and a, kind of a context to do the interview in. Well, as I was just starting to tell you off air, um, you know, I just had uh, Jane on the show a couple of weeks ago and I feel like you're, the two of your stories are so amazing to kind of, you know, get to, you know, discuss back to back because, you know, her story is very much Los Angeles and the story of the formation of sort of like the Los Angeles punk scene and yours, like, you are the first, like legitimately the first Austin punk. That's so funny. Yeah. I, n I don't really think of it like that, but uh, yeah, when, uh, I mean, and, and I, my book, all I ever wanted, it really kind of goes into my trajectory. Uh, but punk rock for me, like really kind of opened up the dream that I had when I picked up a guitar, it was uh, early seventies, Susie Quattro, kind of made me realize that I could be in a band as a woman. I'd never seen women playing instruments in bands. This was before, you know, punk bands had women. And uh, I'd seen lead singers and stuff, but not women playing instruments. So, uh, but I was very much into rock and roll, just, you know, really just like, I was a rock and roller. I liked the Stones and the Faces. And I'm from Texas. I liked ZZ Top. I liked heavy bluesy rock. I liked you know, Deep Purple and uh, just kind of all this 70s stuff, Zeppelin, all of that 70s rock and the, the Faces and the Who, really wide variety of rock music. But so when I started playing guitar, I thought to be in a band, you've got to be really proficient. You've got to play like Jimmy Page. You've got to play like uh, Jimi Hendrix. You've got to be like Eric Clapton. I just thought that's how you get to do that. That was the way it looked to me. And the thing that punk rock did for me was show me when that, when, when it burst upon the scene, it was like, okay, it's not about virtuosity. It's not about getting to this level and woodshedding for hours and hours and working your way uh, from being a novice to some kind of technically adept player. And it really, kind of changed my approach to my to to chasing that dream but also i was the right age you know i was the right age and it was i identified with so many aspects 
Other aspects I, I didn't identify with. I love the Sex Pistols. I love their music. I love when they put out a record. But I'm, you know, I'm a, a teenager living in, in Texas. I, I didn't have that kind of the things they were, their political stances weren't mine. But I, it didn't matter because the music spoke to me. So yeah, sorry to get off track from your question, but uh, I guess at a certain point, when I'm in England and I'm and I'm kind of really introduced to to punk music on a on that level where it was like because I missed out on the pre-punk people I was not in I wasn't into uh Patti Smith that much I wasn't into John K I was into rock and roll you know if it rocked I was into it mm -hmm. so uh being in England in uh 1977 kind of changed my life and when I got kicked out of the band I was playing in then which was just a, a rock and roll band they went on to be to be um girl school but when I got kicked out I had had my eyes open there I'd seen what was happening and I was like fuck it I'll go back to Austin and I will start the first punk band in Austin well this is going to be incredible because I think your book is fantastic and I you know obviously I'm going to plug it off the top but once again everyone needs to read this thing because it is a, it's a very powerful story obviously your life and but I I just think for music nerds and music fans the stuff you get into and I think this will be a great compliment to that because I assure you this will be the nerdy nerdy details that only the listeners of this podcast will care about that we'll be diving into but Oh cool uh, this is, uh, yeah, like, so, but I got to start it off actually the way they all start off, which is, do you remember the first time you ever came across the word punk? Hmm. It might've been like Cream Magazine. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think, I'm not positive, um, but I think I might've started seeing things in mainstream, well, you know, for rock music, mainstream press. I think, I think Rolling Stone, um, cream magazine uh there was a i think i liked this one called a uh, rock scene mm -hmm. um and i think that was the first time i saw but i can't be positive so no i don't know for sure it wasn't like when i got to england and saw punk rockers all over the place that i'd never heard of that i it wasn't like that but it was the first time i saw i saw with my eyes visible visibility is very different than reading about something mm -hmm. yeah no absolutely and I guess going back before that, you know, you mentioned off the top, you know, being a fan of ZZ Top. Was there like any sort of remnants of kind of like that Austin garage rock? Because it's like the birth of psych there, right? Like American Flag and and uh, the 13th Floor Elevators and, and Janis Joplin. Like, was there any sort of hangover and remnants of that scene? Or is it like already kind of moved on to sort of the, the Southern rock stuff that would kind of come, like for lack of a better term? Uh, yeah. Um, well, my age kind of, I, I was kind of missed out, like a lot of the clubs that had the Vulcan Gas Company and places that had the 13th floor elevators and some of that kind of early uh, proto, you know, psychedelic rock that that kind of preceded punk rock. That that was I wasn't old enough to go to those places, so I missed out on that. I did start at an early age hanging out in clubs, but I was seeing, you know rock cover bands i was seeing blues bands uh uh what we didn't really have the southern rock like when i think of like leonard skinner but we had this kind of melding of redneck and hippie music that mm -hmm. that was really pervasive 
which I liked, you know, it was very, I had an outlaw mentality. So I liked that. But yeah, there, there was, there wasn't really, there wasn't any punk rock uh, scene or bands or anything like, you know, like in New York, they had the MC5, I mean, um, in Detroit, they had the MC5 and Iggy and the Stooges prior to punk and New York, they had the New York Dolls and, and stuff. So we didn't really, I don't think we had that in, in Austin. Yeah. Like it seems like it, it really, you know, as it, you kind of talk about in the book that it does kind of come out of nowhere that ZZ Top is the, is the equivalent. Yeah. That was like our regional band. Like we, we, mm. you know, it, we didn't have that urban gritty feel like, you know, Detroit and, you know, and of course, L.A. had all that L.A. stuff. So it's kind of an interesting topic. I mean, somebody should do a cool book about just these like regional, these cities, what they were what they were kind of building around, because it's, it's pretty interesting how the urban places had really gritty music like MC5 and the Stooges and New York Dolls and I know I'm blanking on, I, I tend to blank a lot, but then LA had like the Eagles and Jackson Brown and Texas had ZZ Top. It's a pretty interesting thing. Uh, so it was, it was that era in the seventies, I think. Yeah, definitely. Oh, absolutely. The regional development of music, I think is, is, you know, it's something that's going to be lost obviously now because it's much more of a kind of a, a mono. Yeah. It's, it's just different now. Like how you discover music. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, if you didn't have, like, I didn't even have a big sister or a big brother, which like a lot of older people had access, just, I don't know how, but, you know, I didn't even have that. To, I, I had the radio, you know, mm -hmm. if it wasn't on the radio or it wasn't on, you know, like Don Kirshner's or, <laughs> or whatever, you know, the TV shows that had music, I didn't know about it. Now, if I was combing through the the record stores, I might have been hit, but I was never like a record junkie where I was like, you know, hanging out, like what's new, where's it coming from? I think people that were into that probably got hit a little sooner than I did. Yeah. And I think you're, I think that's why bands like the Go-Go's are so important. I mean, the popularity of the Go-Go's is, is so important is because like you need those cool bands to get popular so they can show up on the, you know, the Don Kirshner rock piles of the era or, or the MTV or whatever it is. So people that don't necessarily have access to cool stuff, have a gateway. Yeah, I think so. Definitely. I mean, I use this word all the time about just visibility, you, you know, mm -hmm. you can read about something, you can hear about something, but when you see it with your eyes, I mean, that's what it happened with me when I saw Susie Quattro on TV in black leather, playing an instrument, fronting a band, leading a band, that's when it was like, like, I didn't think of it myself, like, oh, I could be Keith Richards, or I could be, you know, whoever, you know, I, I had to see her doing it before I made those dots connect. And the Go-Go's, you know, the visibility of us, you know, not, not looking like a guy rock star, not looking like anything yet. We're just like, you know, we're a band, we're being a band, but we're being ourselves and we are being beamed into people's living rooms, young people that can't get to the, you know, the, the club that we're, you know, they're, they're not showing, they can't go to the, the living room in Charlotte, North Carolina, or the, the rat in Boston or the Mabuhe. They can't go to the punk club, but they can see us on TV. So the visibility is, is a big thing. Oh, absolutely. And it's just, you know, I think with the Go-Go's, the other thing is the fact that here was this band that 
had incredible like the songs are just in unbelievable and the fact that like they still hold up like you listen to things that came out even after and it sounds dated today but the, these these songs still sound perfect i agree and i i uh i'm glad you you note that and say that because i feel like that gets overlooked all the time you know it's none of it would mean anything it, the all girl thing the being the first this or that to do this or that or whatever none of it would have happened without that body of work it was really and and it's not just the songs because you know the same song could have been done by somebody else and mm -hmm. not been anything but it was the song with the musician the parts that each musician played the the chemistry between the band it all played a part but it's all kind of to me the the song is the fountainhead from where it all comes and yet the song by itself isn't enough yeah absolutely you know and once again not to just keep harping on the song then but i think it's also the fact that you have so many great songwriters in this band like you know Normally, when you look at bands, there's like one or two, but like there, you know, there's just so many great ideas coming out of this band, and so many songs that are coming to this band from other places that you're bringing in. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't con, I, I considered myself a songwriter when I joined the band, and I said, I, one of the reasons they wanted me in the band was to add another writer, and, and yet, I don't, I didn't. I felt like I learned a lot about songwriting from Jane and Charlotte and what they had come up with. I mean, I, I think writers that I call it, they hit a vein, you know, they hit a, that, the songs on Beauty and the Beat that, you know, I have one song which was kind of got pushed on on the last minute, thank goodness, but uh, Can't Stop the World. Mm -hmm which I wrote when I was 19 years old. And that was very punk rock influenced just because it was just a very simple from the heart attitude, you know, song. And yet they had this body of tunes that went on Beauty and the Beat that were just so good. And mm -hmm. I learned so much from those songs. I learned just from learning to play them, getting so intimately acquainted with that material it really kind of helped shape me as a songwriter. Yeah. Well, I, I guess just going back to before uh, the band, I've, another thing that I wanted to ask you about is you mentioned childhood and childhoods and your first band, you play the, the that's the first band, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. You play that first show and there's five other bands. You say five of Austin's other bands played uh, after us. Do you remember any of the other bands that were kind of happening around that time or like other bands that were local? Yeah, they were local bands. There was one called like Shiva's Headband. And uh, I think there was one called Frida and the Fire Dogs. They were just like funky Austin kind of hippie bands with great players. Okay, so is that, yeah, once again, like is that music, what you're describing earlier is kind of this like, as you said, like redneck meets a hippie kind of vibe, like judging by well, the name, really hippie. Well, except there's a whole, I mean, Texas... People in Texas, they're they're hip to like Jimmy Reed. Um, you know, we have a, a strong legacy here, and most people that start bands have a good good knowledge and and an ability. So there's a lot of soul, is what I guess I'm trying to say. So no, I wouldn't say those bands were necessarily. You couldn't write them off as as oh they were redneck hippie bands or this or that. It was each band 
had a, a particular soulfulness to it and legitimacy and authenticity in their roots and in their influences you know whether it was new orleans whether it was professor longhair or dr john or or you know t-bone walker or jimmy reed you know it was very much about regional influences that you filter just like any scene you know mm -hmm. the bands filter what's around them and they make it they make it something kind of a new a new recipe out of it i guess that's also reflected later on in the punk scene that kind of emerges where there isn't sort of a monoculture to the sound that's coming out. Like you look at a lot of scenes uh, around that time, you know, in, in other parts of the United States and other parts of the world, you know, there's very much like a, a certain sonic that everyone's kind of driving to. And you can't really say that about the stuff that comes out of Austin. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think so. It was very diverse. And it actually, uh, I saw it echoed when I moved to LA. I, I felt the same I felt very comfortable in that scene in LA because it reminded me of Austin. Austin, you know, I literally would go see four or five different types of music in one night. I would just make the rounds and there was not a an exclusivity to it. There was it was just like about what you liked, what did it for you. And when I moved to L.A., um, there was a time like when New Wave wasn't like some watered down, lightweight version of punk rock. It was all the, it was all part of New Wave. You know, uh, there was a time in the early days where where New Wave just meant that was the bigger umbrella and punk fell under that. And then it started kind of dividing and like a fork a little bit. And New Wave was more melodic, maybe or more maybe not melodic necessarily, but more. Um, pop oriented maybe just kind of a more intense pop version or something or like i think of it like the stiff records clan you know mm. and there was so when when uh, i got to la so there's like the kind of new wave bands there's like the rockabilly bands there's the rootsy bands there's the bands like fear and there's the alley cats and x and there's just such this wide spectrum and variety and you could go to any i mean i might start out at madame wong seeing you know the no which was basically a power pop band but yeah. with a punk ethic and then i might end up you know seeing uh the screamers which is very like art punk and then i might go see the, the weirdos you know or which is to me was like la's damned um so it was just a really it was it felt inclusive and i didn't you didn't have to look a certain way you didn't have to i mean you can even look at pictures of audiences from those early days and and not everybody is all completely to the extreme you know it, it was it felt inclusive yeah i guess it's that it's the pre-codification right where it's it's much more open and there's um you know and people talk about in la there's a shift that happens right when there's when it starts going more hardcore and there's the violence that kind of comes in and uh you know like yeah people talk about and on the podcast all the time about how there felt like there was a change then and that's when it started you know and obviously by that point there's enough other scenes that those just carried on yeah i mean by that time i was with the go-go's were being successful i didn't identify with it i mean my my um my punk rock when I first got in, it was the Pistols and the Damned and the Ramones, and then it branched out, of course, to Blondie and and the more and Elvis Costello, and and it just kind of got very open. Yeah. 
you know, it was the ethos I identified. But but by the time there's like the kind of violent, angry punk rock, I, I had nothing to, to, there was nothing for me there. You know, I, I, I got it for other people, but it wasn't my scene. One thing I found interesting in, in the book is the Manson comes up a few times and it seems like this is almost like the generation that was, you know, the, the, like this was a point where this generation that was kind of raised in the wake of Manson was finally able to get free, you know, and once again, there's something else people have talked about on the podcast. And I, you know, it's just something that I found you bring up a few times in the book, obviously. So it's something that ringed heavy. And I was just wondering your thoughts on how that affected the era and affected just, I guess, growing up. Well, it was just such a huge thing because, you know, I was a kid in the 60s, you know, and my mom was a, a student at UT. So I was around a lot of hippie stuff and a lot of pot and a lot of acid and the whole like, you know, protesting the war and, and, you know, peace and love and this and all that was, you know, kind of that was, that was the it was a really optimistic, hopeful time. Like we could change things and make a difference and, and, you know, fuck the establishment and all that stuff. And I think the, it was kind of a loss of innocence when, when Manson and his followers kind of took that vibe and turned it into something so twisted and ugly and horrific and tragic that it kind of, it was kind of just took the air out of the balloons for me. I think it did have an, it's interesting you say that because it did have an effect. It kind of, it kind of pierced the innocence and the hope for what could be. Mm -hmm. No, it really feels like it had a, you know, and once again, I didn't live through it, but just from talking to people and, and reading about it, like it had a chilling effect across youth culture. Like you said, like it vilified hippies and it turned that into something that, you know, like mainstream media was even more skeptical of at a certain point. Yeah, it was frightening. I mean, I had never heard of a cult before, you know, and I had never, I had never encountered the idea that you could follow some, some madman that, you know, and all these madmen that people follow that are supposed to be charismatic. I don't see it. I, I there's not one madman that I see as being charismatic, not one. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, maybe it's because I see all the horror that they that they um, inflict, but anyway, yeah, that that was new. That was a that was a new concept. Other things, you know, like I was in Austin when uh, Charlie Whitman, the sniper, went on top of the UT tower, and I was a young kid, and he was like killed all these people from the tower, and uh, so that was the first time I was aware that you know of things like random just sniper weird serial killing you know yeah yeah you mentioned and, oh sorry no, no, no go and, and i was going to say and in my book that i i didn't touch on this stuff so much because i mean it was really just because it did have an effect and as i was writing this book i really tried to put myself in the i don't want to write anything or try to put anything on the page unless i was very connected to the experience of who i was what I was feeling, what was impressing upon me. So I did touch on these things because as I got in that place, that's, that's was stuff that I was like, Oh yeah, fucking hell, you know? Um, and as life goes on and, you know, the chaos of our lives and our memories get pretty big, it's hard to put any order to them. But writing, when you write a book, you kind of start seeing a pattern or an order or the way, 
things affect you and stuff. So, yeah. Well, yeah, you mentioned not being, you know, uh, influenced or swayed by the charisma of Mad Men. And then, you know, later on, like obviously not saying that he's the same as Charles Manson or anything, but certainly a guy who's not a great person in the light of the, the modern day is, is Kim Fowley. And you talk about how meeting him, you just were not taken by any of his bullshit. No, um, I think I think what I wrote in the in the book really summed it up. I just hadn't I had gotten so much support from men as a young musician. You know, I had I don't know if it was just that they were all, you know, saints <laughs> or if they just like picked up that I was the real thing and really wanted to do what they were doing or but I had gotten a lot of support and to to see how he treated women around him his artists people he was managing people he was working with was was shocking to me mm -hmm. well and it's definitely kind of the same sort of energy where you're preying on people's vulnerabilities and you're preying on people's weakness and and need for attention or affection or whatever and it's it's the same sort of like cult leader mentality almost yeah it was like hollywood casting couch yeah breaking people down to to use them and stuff but um on to more pleasant things what did the Van Jelly Roll sound like? Oh, they were like, uh, like, like um, early stones or yard birds. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And so Lickety Split, like, was that kind of where you, you were going? Like you mentioned the early covers that you're doing, but like towards the end, like when you're kind of finding your own sound, like what was, what was the vibe of that band? Well, it took a long time to find my, you know, I, at the beginning, I, I just wanted to be able to play well, that, you know, that's, that's what it was about. And you had to like, learn how to be a good musician to, to, to make it. And I had no, no uh, qualms about once I once I laser focused on this is what I want to do. I want to be in a band, I want to make it I don't want a day job. I want this to be my career, the same as all these other bands that I like have managed to do. And so doing covers was you know a way to learn how to play my instrument you know and um and as you learn the covers you could kind of start seeing maybe what the band collectively was drifting towards so um you know when we started lickety split it was like a all-female power trio that's mm -hmm. what we were and so we just our template was you know, we thought, okay, we'll be like ZZ Top. So, but we just picked covers like just songs that we liked, you know, and it could be anything from a ZZ Top song to a, to a, a you know, Chuck Berry or whatever. And that's the same, when I started my first punk band, I think we only had like three originals. We were doing, we tried to make it a little obscure, but we did, you know, we did Shake Appeal by the Stooges and we did, um, we did uh, Pretty Vacant by the, you know, we did a lot of cover songs because we didn't have, you know, I didn't come into being a musician as like, I'm going to generate my own material. Like I was more focused on being a musician and I probably didn't start really writing songs till I, I mean, I wrote a few, I did write a few and I wrote a few with the Violators, which was my punk band, but but mainly when I got to LA and I was lonely and isolated, that's when I turned to songwriting. 
so you mentioned the violators there. Are there any recordings? Like you mentioned a, a Battle of the Bands tape in the book. Is there any other recordings other than that? I've looked everywhere for this freaking tape because um, it's, as far as I know, it's the only uh, recorded. And I, I did an audio book for my book that, mm -hmm. that I, not only did I do an original soundtrack and score to, but I also, there's underscoring in some of the text that I'm narrating that has, you know, kind of uh, underscores what I'm talking about. So I was, I was like spent days and days looking for a violators tape that I could kind of play underneath me talking about that band, but I uh, couldn't find it. I know I have it somewhere. I'm one of these people that has like, you know, just cartons and crates full of cassettes. I can only imagine, but it's, it's what an important document, not to put any pressure on you finding it, but it, you know, now to put the pressure on, I mean, but it's just like such an important document because I always heard and the way it was always written prior to reading your book, it's like, Oh, the skunks and the violators. But to find out that like the violators are predating the skunks by a good, what, like few months at least. Right. Yeah. I mean, it seems like that, but when I was writing the book, I was surprised how quickly all of this stuff went by. I mean, in my mind, it was like, oh, we did the violators for a year. But when I when I really sat down and, and looked at calendars and and press that I had and knowing when I moved to L.A., you know, we played our first gig uh, at the beginning of January, like right after the Pistols played in San Antonio. We, we'd been rehearsing and stuff, but we got our first gig in January. And by August, I believe we were moving to L.A. I think I, now I'm going blank on that, but I think it was pretty short lived. Maybe it was, maybe it was a year and a half. Now I'm now I don't even know. <laughs> so by the time <laughs> my book again to find out. <laughs> yeah, everything, in my, everything in my book is so researched so well, but uh, it is, it is I don't very. Have a, I don't know if I have. Now I'm looking it up. Oh my it's, god! Go ahead. In, in the book, also, you mentioned seeing Dr. Feelgood. And just because you're such a student of guitarists and, and you know, obviously an incredible musician, what do you think of Wilco Johnson? Because he comes up a lot on the show as being a, a sort of a really influential guitarist on people. Well, I, I thought he was great. And I another band, I don't know the guitar player's name, but I really liked Eddie and the Hot Rods. Mm. And um, the bands I saw in England that year when I was playing with girls' school was like... I didn't get to see any of the huge bands until I got back to America, but I saw Boomtown Rats, the Vibrators, Eddie and the Hot Rods. Um, gosh, I'm for, now I'm blanking on this too. Like, kind of. Oh, and I did see Doctor Feelgood, but I think that was in Austin. Yeah, you said in Austin, I think. Yeah, that was in Austin. Um, so they were almost like, you know. In England, they called it pub rock, and then it kind of went beyond that to mm -hmm. like a more kind of just grittier, more kind of in, more intensity than pub rock, pump, eh, uh, pub rock, which now I think people think of pub rock as being almost like kind of a watered down thing, you know? But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it, it's like you were saying earlier, like this is the this is the direct precursor to punk in england you know like the dr yeah. feelgood stuff is like the new york dolls or the stooges or even even zz top yeah yeah and and i you know i i don't think zz top was a precursor to punk rock at all but i do think that the the 
kind of taking something like indigenous to to music like blues and kind of really doing it in a very specific way is 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 kind of part of what's an element of punk music you know it's it's kind of like you just you just kind of it's like crack or something you just boil it down to an essence and then and then that's what you grab onto and that's what you exploit or or uh, turn up turn up the frequency on that that very basic essence yeah and, well, I, and I also meant only in the sense that they influence you and it's just the you know they influence that kind of wave of kids that would be that first wave of punk rockers in in Austin but also Billy Gibbons is still cool my friends play in a crust band and they met him in an airport a couple of years ago and hit it off with him and he came and saw them when they played Austin at some you know crusty festival Oh yeah out. yeah he's he's a super cool guy really really and and what a character Absolutely. Um, you mentioned in the book also that there's like a big pile of you that drive up to the infamous Randy's Rodeo Sex Pistols show. That's got to be one of the most famous punk shows of all time. Um, who else was in the van other than the Violators and I guess the future members of the Skunks? Uh, just We just took two cars up and uh, it was a big event. You know, I couldn't believe the Pistols were playing in San Antonio. I just couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, it was probably the biggest thing that had happened, you know. Um, so we went and uh, it was, it was really, I mean, it was, I mean, I, I think I wrote about it really, really well. I think I really captured what that, that concert was like. Um, and I was proud of, of that, that I was able to get it there. I wanted people to feel like they were next to me and, and, and get it. And, um, yeah, it was it was very very memorable. Oh, absolutely! And I've seen that footage, you know, dozens of times. You know, Sid bleeding with the the stuff carved in his chest, but like to be put in there by someone that's actually there, it's a totally different experience than to watching sort of in this grainy fourth generation VHS rip that's being passed around. You know, right, right. Uh, you also mentioned there was an opening act. Do you remember who the opening act was? And like, were they kind yeah, of? Yeah, they were called the. They were called. I think the Vagabonds. Were they like a punk band or are they just putting them on as like novelty type thing? Well, like, you know, my band tried to get the gig mm -hmm. and then the promoter said we could have it if our drummer fucked him. So yeah. we were like, fuck you, fuck you. Uh, and I think it was a lot of it was like who you knew. So I think the promoters like had a had a, a, a relative or a friend that was in this band and uh, no, they weren't a punk band at all. I can't imagine that'd be a great opening slot to have. You know, I can't imagine that'd be a crowd that would be, uh, you know, very receptive to anything. But well, it was very show. new. It was very new for for Texas still. I mean, most of the people were long hairs in the audience, and San yeah. Antonio yeah. Is, a, is a rock and roll city. I mean, it was like San Antonio, like. A lot of metal bands will bypass Austin, but they wouldn't think of bypassing San Antonio. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's always been this kind of. So I think a lot of the audience was people that were just almost there out of curiosity. You know, there is very few punk rockers there that in, in appearance, um, in appearance. You know, I think me and my friends and a couple of boys we we met there that went on to start a band called the next 
here in Austin. That was one of the first punk bands. Oh yeah. But, but, uh, and that one of those guys is, I, I like met him at the sex pistols, brought him back. He became my boyfriend for a few months and then moved. And then he started the next. Oh, that's, I was going to say that guy, whatever happened to that guy that you bring up in the book. Yeah. Yeah. He started this band, the next with a, with another. And by that time, you know, in the, in the beginning, there was a, a handful of bands and, you know, but we, we went to LA pretty soon. And then there was a whole Austin punk scene that I was not that, because I, I was young enough to still be kind of a snob. I'm like, oh, I live in LA now. You know, I see the <laughs> real punk. You guys are just like wannabes. I, I mean, I had kind of an attitude after I moved to LA. <laughs> well, I don't blame you. You're like the trailblazer. You're starting this scene up. <laughs> Yeah, it's lame, you know, when you're young, you're kind of lamer like that. Like you have to be like, you have to, a lot of people when they're younger, they, they need to kind of feel better about themselves by feeling superior. Oh, yes. Oh, I, would, I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, just You also talk about Project Terror in the book. You mentioned that they weren't a punk band, but they had punk rock sympathies. What what do they sound like? Well, it's crazy because they they were amazing musicians two of them played with eric johnson who was like like a like a virtuoso king i mean i think his own i think his main fans are like other guitar players that look up to that but um he's a great guy he gave me a guitar lesson when i was 16 but he's he's like an exquisite virtuoso player and two guys played and yet they didn't want to be left out of what this so they just started a side band you know there was some some musicians are and it's not bandwagon jumping it's like kind of being a music lover and oh this is new this is exciting this is this is cool um and they just they started a, a punk band and it wasn't it wasn't like you know what made you know what made them a punk band they said they were they played and they they um you know, they might have worn a stupid hat or something. Who the fuck knows what made them, you know, back it up. But, you know, mainly the, the main thing about it is that it's supposed to be open. It's supposed to be inclusive. It's supposed to be about change and about, you know, energy and wanting to get rid of the what the, the status quo, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's funny because, like, you mentioned also in the book, the all time low of tonight's the night coming out. And it seems like prior to punk in the book, it really comes off like, like rock and roll is almost bottoming out, you know? Oh, I know. When I was like researching that, I'm like, fuck every band I loved was making shit music. And I think the line I said in my book was like, it was like right when I was trying to find my voice, it seemed like all my musical heroes had lost theirs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, <laughs> it, it was a weird time, you know, for, I think, I think cause, uh, disco had that thing, you know, right before, uh, punk rock, everybody was all disco and some of the rock bands were like, you know, the stones and, and they're like trying to make disco songs and, and um, I don't know. It was a, a weird time. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, were the Huns going before you left? Were, was that a band you saw? I didn't see them that I was, uh, no, I wasn't into them. I, okay. I didn't, they, they formed probably right as I was leaving or, mm -hmm. or after I left. Yeah. And I heard about him, but I just wasn't interested. you know, I, I, 
I lived in LA and plus by then it seemed old to me. Like I, to me, it was like, okay, you know, it seemed, this seemed late to me. Like, mm -hmm. okay, you're, you're not going to be the damned, you know, you're not going to be the clash, but that's taking away from what it was regionally. That was, that was what got people going here. So it's, it's cool. But for me, it was just like, I, I had moved on and I didn't even really, I mean, I didn't really identify specifically as like, oh, I'm a punk rocker. I, I, that's, that was never how I was, you know. I like music. I like songs. I like bands. You know, I like fashion. But, and and punk rock embodied all of the things that I like and love. So in that respect, yeah. But I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't need like a, a a like that kind of identity to define myself you know what mm -hmm. i mean like i could appreciate everything that crossed with what i loved but it wasn't going to stop me from you know liking uh god you know from liking television or liking blondie or liking you know bands that weren't angry and and political you know i like i like music that's just what I like, you know, we all like what we like, and that's that's the way it is. Oh, and on here, that's all those bands are punk bands to me. Like, yeah, yeah, I mean, they are, absolutely. they are, but it's it's all like contextual, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the that's why I think it's such a hard label to just kind of slap. I mean, because there's so many elements. There's there's fashion and politics and and class, socio socioeconomic class orientations and and all kinds of stuff, you know, well, but the, the main thing is what, what it did for the Go-Go's in terms of open it up for women. You know, if, if those, if Jane and Belinda and Margot and Alyssa hadn't been in that scene, they wouldn't have started the Go-Go's. And if they hadn't started the Go-Go's, my life wouldn't be what it is. So I'm like, just, and for me, I would have like been still probably sitting in my bedroom for eight hours trying to play like Jimmy Page, you know? So it's like, <laughs> So I'm like all for, all for it, you know, whatever, whatever it takes. Uh, you know, when you move to LA and the, in the tech stones get going, it seems like you kind of fall into more of like a, you know, a power pop kind of leaning scene. Like it would seem like a, a band, well, you play with the plimsolls, you have a lot, you know, they, they play your birthday party. You talk about in the book, but uh, were, did, you, did the nerves ever come through Austin when you were there? Or do you ever see, cause they, they were no, the nerves didn't play in Austin and I loved the nerves. Yeah, I mean, I meeting Peter Case was like such a thrill. We all hung out at the at the Capitol Records swap meet, which would usually start around 2 a.m. when the bars let out and every musician in town would go there. I never bought anything, but it was all music lovers. And that's when I met Peter Case. And, you know, I I just loved the nerves. And when the text tone started, the context for that is, you know, my favorite bands during that era or artists was Nick Lowe, mm -hmm. uh, Rock Pile, Elvis Costello, Blondie, The Clash. Th those were my favorite bands at that time. And uh, so the Textones, we we also had two different writer singers, which was me and Carla Olson. So, you know, her influences were a little bit different than mine. We had some crossover, but. Um, 
I was also a huge fan of, you know, the Buzzcocks and, um, you know, a lot of kind of poppier, not poppier, but melodic, you know, I just like good songs. I like craft. I like song yep. craft, yep. you know, and the Ramones can just do something in that simplest way, but the, the, there's still a song craft and there's, there's just something like, to me, there's one Ramones, one Ramones. I don't want to hear anybody else try to do that. You know, they, they like, that's the pinnacle yeah. that that's, that's like, and I loved them, you know, but I wasn't going to try to be the Ramones because why, like, I'm not going to try to be Muddy Waters, you know, it's like, why try to be what has been done the best it can be, you know? Absolutely. But I think that's the, the best thing about punk rock is it just gave people permission, you know, and obviously before it gets codified and marketed and all that stuff, but in the beginning, it just gave people permission to do their own thing. However it was and, and kind of, you know, people were free to make their own take on rock and roll. And it just, that's, that's the thing I love about it. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I, I, I think, I think it's, uh, and it's just so crazy, like how it's still like, you know, pops up and influences things. And, and it's just, it's super cool. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of really into hip hop now. That's what I'm into, but, but, um, it's like I still love seeing like a new take on a punk band, you know, I do like that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, very much like hip hop, you know, and this comes up on the show quite a bit is that it's like one of the few places that give young people uh, privilege in in their thoughts, you know, like there's just so much music that like you're saying you have to workshop for years to be good enough to play this kind of music kid versus this stuff where it's like, you can you can just pick up and play and it, it it's about the emotion long before it's about the virtuosity you you, you talk yeah. about that in your book yeah it's about emotion and energy and i think you know coming from some place that's pure you know it's coming from like having being who you want to be and putting not being afraid to put who you are and who you want to be out there mm. instead of trying to copy something um, I love those Textones records. The, the first single on Chiswick is is amazing. That three song single. Oh, thank you. I wish that to me the recording just sounds so dinky. But you know, my original Textone version of um, Vacation is being used as a theme song to this cool show called um, High Town on Stars. And that oh, I heard that show. Yeah, day. yeah, it makes my day every time I I, I watched this. I started watching the show just to. I couldn't believe that they had picked that version of vacation. And I talked to the producer afterwards and she said, we really wanted vacation, but we just thought that the Go-Go's version didn't capture the feeling of the, the, the show. And then she said, and then we found the Textones version and it was just so kind of raw and um, unpolished that um, they said, let's, let's go with it. So I love that. I, I mean, and it's just crazy in this business. That, I mean, I wrote that song when, again, I think I was 19 years old. And uh, I would have never dreamt that, you know, A, that it would be a Go-Go's hit song. And B, that the freaking Textones version would be used on a television show, you know, <laughs> in 2020. I mean, geez, I like you can't even 
you can't even make this shit up. You can't even dream it. No, and it's also wild when you look at that label Chiswick that you're on, because that's the first place that puts out the first Joe Strummer stuff, the first Motorhead stuff, the first Billy Bragg stuff, like uh, the first uh, the proto um, Pogue stuff. Like, yeah, the Chiswick was amazing, and the guy Ted Carroll, I think he's passed away. Um, he, I mean, I thought we had arrived. I thought, oh, we're gonna make it, because that's how LA is. You get there to be in a band and all these little things just happen all the time that make you think this is it we're we're we're, we're good now we're, we're gonna make it and i thought that was it for the text tones um, oh it's, yeah it's such a great label when you went over there you mentioned the promotional tour did you play any shows on that no nope. no nope. there was no interest there was no money so it was just to, like do interviews like, when you went yeah out? yeah carla and i went over there and did interviews and then we went to italy together did you take in any shows when you were there or was it just more, you're just like, I just want to go vacation. Oh no, we, we definitely, we, we knew Jake Riviera. So we were pretty in with the whole, like the stiff gang. So uh, we, I don't re recall specifically. I'd have to research it and talk to Carla. I'm sure we saw shows. Had the, had your like, you know, obviously, you know, how much had London changed by that point? Like, obviously, you go into great detail about that trip you do with your mom earlier when you joined, you know, Painted Lady, um, ultimately girls' school. But like, are what are your impressions reflecting on it? Like, had had it changed? Had like, was punk was must have been over by that point? When you went back. Um, no, I think it was more just like adapted. Okay. You know, you'd, you'd still go to the King's Road. Seditionaries was still there. You know, mm -hmm. the punk rockers were still all over all over King's Road. Um, there was clubs. No, it wasn't gone. It, it was adapted. It was just more, uh, it wasn't so uh, like an anomaly, like some like rare, unusual thing. It was more mainstream. I, mean, I, I don't mean mainstream in the commercial sense. It was just like, it wasn't like, oh, your head whipped around when you saw an outrageous punk. It was like, oh, it's just like seeing sadly it's like how homeless they are you know in the beginning when you saw homeless people you were just like oh my god oh my god and now you don't think anything yeah i know yeah. that's a weird analogy but it's something that people can relate to yeah know? well it, it goes i guess the desensitization you know and like the idea that you just get yeah you're saying used to things that you, you you know you wouldn't have been used to unfortunately in the case of homelessness a few uh, a few years earlier Oh, so, uh, Kathy, this has been unbelievable. Would you come back at some point down the line for a part two? I would love to. Oh, my God. I would love that. Yes. Uh, before I let you go, though, I'm just wondering, like, you know, looking back on that L.A. scene, you mentioned this incredible breadth and and sort of, you know, swath of these bands from the Screamers to, to the Plimsolls and all this stuff. What were... What are some of the bands that you think are kind of underappreciated from that scene? Because it is so storied that there's just stuff that falls through the cracks. The plugs. Mm, absolutely. Um, you know, the plugs were one of my favorite bands. You know, I loved everything about them. I loved their music. I loved uh, I loved the songs. I love what they wrote songs about. I love that they were from Texas, you know, that I loved how what great players they were. I mean, Charlie Quintana was a an amazing drummer and he was such a kid he was 16 when i met him and when when i before i moved to la they came and they played raul's and we got each other's numbers and they saved they saved me when i moved out there and fell out with my bandmate 
and Carla hadn't moved yet. The, the, the guys in the plugs, they took care of me. You know, they really looked out for me. So they have a huge spot in my heart. Plus, I do think that they're not as known as they should be. Uh, I love the alley cats. Mm -hmm. I was really happy to see on YouTube the other day that there's like there's actual alley cat stuff on YouTube. So I'm going to kind of dive into that one day and have that bring back some memories. And, you know, let's see who else. It seems like a lot of the other ones I, I liked are, are fairly, you know, known. I, I I think they're all the, I mean, I think X is terribly underrated. I think X should be in the Rock Hall of Fame. I think there's X is like a, a, just a phenomenally important and great band. Absolutely. But I think even amongst plug, uh, sorry, amongst punk fans, the plugs are kind of underappreciated. And I, you know, when you said that, and I, that was something I, you know, reading your book, it made me go and throw on my plugs records because they are so great, but um, this has been absolutely phenomenal. And anytime you want to come back on and talk Austin punk, London punk, or LA punk, please <laughs> okay. know the door is always open. All right. Well, thank you so much. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I enjoyed talking to you a lot. You're very, you're very good at this. I do a lot of these and you're very good at it. Thank you, Kathy, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Kathy will be back for part two because we barely, we barely got into the Go-Go's. I feel, I feel uh, we got a lot more to, to get to eventually. Um, and, uh, and once again, please do yourself a favor and check out that book, All I Ever Wanted, because it is a phenomenal read and the soundtrack as well is definitely worth listening to because... Gosh, she's written some incredible songs. Holy. And uh, once again, it does uh, look like currently, as of recording this episode, the Go-Go's are are, are going to be in this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But, you know, throw them a couple more votes. I think you can still vote. This thing is still open. And by the way, it does look like a pretty cool class uh, this year going in. I'm not a huge fan of, uh, you know, Halls of Fames and stuff like that. But uh, as far as the class that's going in this year, there's some, there's some cool people going in this year, too. Including the Go-Go's, it looks like. Knock on wood. Keep voting. Keep voting. All right. Uh, that is that for today. And on the next, well, I guess next episodes this weekend, it is Detroit weekend on Turned Out of Punk. That's right. Not one, not two, but three episodes looking at not just completely different eras. Well, I guess two of them kind of overlap, but, uh, Three definitely completely different scenes within Detroit punk and hardcore. First episode is with Lorne from the Dogs. Now, if you're not familiar with the Dogs, they are one of the greatest Kill by Death bands, one of the standout bands on the Kill by Death compilation series with their song Slash Your Face, which is an incredible anti fascist song about uh, just like it's an unbelievable punk song. But this band's career goes way deeper than that. Like, <laughs> this will blow your mind. If you're a fan, of, of rock music in general, this is a band that I think, I don't know, it, it's real game changer. We're talking about a band that intersects with the MC5, Ted Nugent, with uh, the Ramones, with uh, all the stuff in L.A., all the L.A. punk stuff, all the pre-punk stuff in L.A., Van Halen. This, this will blow your mind. This is one for the ages. Kiss! Kiss! Anyway, that's first. Then after that is Dave Buick of the legendary The Go!, who, of course, were sub-pop recording artists. He also is the founder of Italy Records, who put out one of the most expensive seven inches of all time, 
with the white stripes hand painted seven inch uh, sleeve. I believe it went for thirty seven thousand dollars. We talk about it on the show. It is that's that's wild to think about thirty seven thousand dollar record. Holy! Anyway, it is a an incredible conversation, and he is a record collector's record collector. We get into some of that stuff on the show, and then wrapping it up with the the hardest of the hardcore, the legend from Cold as Life and from Hate Inc. Jeff G. This is a uh, it's a it's an unbelievable episode. It's a it's an incredible episode. They are. You know, if Madball's writing a song about how hard your band is, you know, it, it's it's there's probably some truth to that. And uh, this is a band that, it, you know, this is, I'm not gonna. Why am I rambling on about it? You're gonna hear it. It's coming up this weekend. I just I just gotta shut up and start editing because it's a lot of editing now that I've said that out loud. All right. Uh, remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids and we need to help trans people protect themselves. And we need to stop hate and violence against Asian people. Um, we need to just smash fascism. We need to stop fascism because this shit has been ridiculous for as long as it's been around. These aren't political issues. These are human rights issues. And uh, please uh, get involved, you know, um, sign up, vote if you can vote. If there's an election, if there's any sort of thing that you can shape governments with take part in that process um you know sign sign petitions do do whatever you can just do do something doing something's better than doing nothing that's for sure uh speaking of doing something do something creative it'll help yourself you know just just make something make a picture make a picture draw a picture make a podcast this shit's easy this is easier than drawing a picture i'll tell you that much uh you can go out and start a band when you're able to you know, I mean, you can start a band online, you know, do the, enjoy Zoom while you still can, because after this, I don't think any of us are going to want to use Zoom again when we finally get through, through this, which brings me to the point of uh, wearing a mask. Please just, just wear a mask. It's not necessarily even for you. It's to protect people around you. Uh, my God. Yeah. I think we've all, by this point, uh, have people close to us or, or, or friends of friends even that have been lost to uh, this thing that we're all dealing with. So Please wear a mask, wash your hands, do, do all that stuff. We need just keep it up. Come on. We can get through this. And, uh, I think that's it. Oh, sign your organ donor cards. Definitely. Please sign your organ donor cards and donate blood if you can. And, uh, you know, live, live your own life. But these are just things that, uh, you know, uh, I think, I think we've all did them. The world might be a slightly better place. All right. That is it. Oh, and as always, Remember to go over to Oil and Flowers on iTunes and check out Oil and Flowers with myself and Buddha Blaze, where we talk about cannabis and uh, the wonderful uh, world of corporate cannabis. No, I'm not, I'm not, believe me, I'm not putting that over, but that is taking over and we get into the news stories and Buddha always has an incredible interview with someone from the world of cannabis. It's definitely worth listening to if you're into the plant. And that's it. I'll see you next week. Or, God, next week. This weekend. Four times. See you four times. Detroit weekend. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands 
hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.